so that goes back into the listening element, actually. Um, one of the earliest Reading Revolution episodes we did for Left POC was of Paulo Freire's work, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And in that work, which is like very famous, you know, lots of people have read it and discussed it and analyzed it, fill in the blank, right? So it's not that we're, you know, reinventing the wheel by discussing his work, but I think it plays a big role into the ways that we think about the podcast. So that's why I need to mention it here as in my discussion of advice, right? I think that one of the most important aspects of that work is when Freire talks about the need to listen and to listen to the, the people in the communities that you hope to serve, right? He literally talks about like having, having like listening sessions where, you, where the people, let's say if you're doing research in a community or whatever, you go there and you listen to people and their needs and like have them express themselves first. And I think that we as podcast hosts and creators of, and not just podcast hosts, but creators of any sort of content, you have to think about what the community needs, not just what you want to do. Welcome to Decolonization in Action, a podcast that considers how knowledge, medicine, science, and the arts are being decolonized today. My name is Christina Comer, and I'm broadcasting from Berlin, Germany. This episode opens with Wendy Muse, podcast creator and host of the Left Pocket Project podcast, who I'm so happy to welcome back to the podcast. This episode opens with Wendy talking about the need to listen. And this episode is dedicated to what listening can mean with a special focus on the Left Pocket Project podcast. In addition to critical discussions on the histories of leftist people of color, we talk about how Wendy activates anti-colonial practices in the very design and expanded forms of her podcast. Wendy shares in this episode more about what her podcast does to support communities most oppressed and why she structured the podcast without a paywall and specifically how she gives back to other podcasts with each episode. To start this episode on listening, I want to turn briefly back to the opening clip with Wendy's reference to Brazilian anti-colonial activist educator and philosopher Paulo Freire and his revolutionary text titled Pedagogy of the Oppressed, first published in Spanish in 1968, written in exile in Chile after the military coup in Brazil and being imprisoned by the dictatorship. As Wendy mentioned, she and her co-host Richard included this text in their podcast subseries, Reading Revolution, which I highly recommend and is how I have come to start reading and thinking with this text. Recovering and learning from the histories of leftists of color and connecting theory to the everyday is what for me continues to be so powerful about the Left Pocket Project. And I'm so excited to share a conversation that I had with Wendy, where we talk more about the Left Pocket Project and podcasting as an extension or expression of the kinds of listening sessions Paulo Freire conducted and theorized. If not already clear, <laughs> I am a serious fan of Wendy's podcast, The Left Pocket Project, and I continue to be deeply influenced and inspired by her work and approach to podcasting. I first became so interested in Wendy's podcast because of Deck in Action creator and host Edna Bonhomme's interview with Wendy back in the very first season of this podcast, episode three. I encourage our listeners to listen and re-listen to the earlier conversation, so please check out the show notes for a link. 
With deep gratitude to both Edna and Wendy, it is wonderful to welcome Wendy back to the podcast. Wendy Muse is a PhD candidate in history at New York University and is currently finishing her dissertation regarding the activities of leftist networks formed between Brazilians and Lusophone African activists during their concurrent struggles against dictatorial rule and colonialism, respectively. She also has an MA in Latin American Studies and has lived and worked in Brazil, where in addition to her current work, she has also conducted research on the Black press, Black women's activism in the early 1900s, and political subversion among samba performers during the dictatorship. Wendy, as I mentioned earlier, is the creator and host of The Left Pocket Project, which started as a book list at the end of 2016 on Twitter with the hashtag LeftPOC and became a podcast in 2017. You can find The Left Pocket Project podcast on many podcast platforms, including on Patreon, SoundCloud, and iTunes. Follow The Left Pocket Project on Twitter at LeftPOC or follow the hashtag LeftPOC which I highly recommend you do. I spoke with Wendy on October 18th, already somehow two months ago. Prior to our conversation, we had a short interview over email in which I asked more about how Wendy started and sustains her podcast. We build on that earlier written interview for this episode, so you will hear it mentioned. Please find the entire conversation on the web post for this episode at www decolonizationinaction.com. This episode is structured in four parts, in which I asked Wendy more about her podcast and her subseries, Reading Revolution, and her new subseries, Comrade Bami. Since recording this conversation, Wendy has released new episodes also for Comrade Bami, so please be sure to check them out as well. In the second part of our discussion, we start talking about what listening means in the context of a podcast or any form of creative work in general. The episode concludes with Wendy sharing critical advice and feedback about starting a podcast. And it concludes again, (laughs) that's part four, as I forgot to ask Wendy a question and she made extra time at the end of the episode to share book recommendations. I really appreciate Wendy's multimedia contributions to this episode and I'm so excited to share it after a long delay. Thank you, Wendy, for taking time to talk with me on a Sunday morning there in Baltimore and afternoon here in Berlin. I'm really happy to welcome you back to the podcast. Thank you again for having me. As I mentioned in the introduction, you began the Left Pocket Project in late 2016 as a book list created with the hashtag LeftPOC. In 2017, you launched the Left Pocket Project as a podcast, and I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to talk to you more about it. Being new to podcasting myself, I continue to be so inspired by your approach to podcasting and especially how you use the medium and platform of a podcast to activate and archive histories of leftist people of color and making them literally available on your website free of charge. Prior to our conversation today, we did an initial interview via email and I want to make a short reference to the first question in which you introduced the Left Pocket Project and shared that you and your co-host Richard, quote, interview academics, organizers, and journalists in hopes of bridging the gap between the ivory tower and the larger community on the history of leftists of color, end quote. Thank you for already introducing your podcast and our previous digital conversation, which as I already mentioned, will be available on the Deccan Action website. 
I wanted to start today's conversation by asking more about your podcast. What motivated or inspired you to use the specific form of a podcast for the Left Pocket Project, which started originally as a book list with the hashtag LeftPOC? Sure. So in the beginning, you know, my approach was sort of like a res in response to things that I kept seeing in the media and on social media as well during the 2016 election. So even back in the primaries when Bernie and Hillary were still running against one another, I kept seeing over and over all of these think pieces and articles and, and interviews and whatnot, especially on, you know, mainstream media sources about how Black people and Latinos were supposedly conservative or pragmatic in our approach to politics and how we would never on earth, you know, stray, quote unquote, to approach sort of radical politics or embrace a radical politician. And not that I consider Sanders radical in any way, but in the American, U.S. American context, he kind of is because we have a fairly conservative you know, political framework in this country. And so during that time, I kept noticing over and over that these pieces were coming out. And I said, this is ridiculous. Like I study, you know, leftist movements around the world for part of my, you know, for, for my dissertation work. And in particular, you know, part of that process requires reading a lot about what's what happened here in the United States as well among people of color who are on the left. And so obviously I knew that you know, these depictions of us were not accurate. And what at the same time I noticed was that on the left in the U.S., there was often a marginalization or a sort of downplaying or, or ob, you know, obscuring of the contributions that were made by people of color. And when I say people of color, just to be clear, you know, I understand that there are problems with that term, but I use it just for shorthand to refer to anyone who wouldn't identify or be identified as white in this country. And so I, you know, I found it of the utmost importance to really talk about and highlight the contributions that we've made. And not only the contributions, but like the innovations that we've given to left politics and theory and activism and organizing. And so what I started doing at that time was just, at, this is at the end, so well after the 2016 general election in which Hillary lost to Donald Trump, where I saw once again, this sort of rehashing, re-upping of narratives about how black people were supposedly pragmatic and people of color, you know, weren't interested in radical politics. When that was happening, and also while we were simultaneously being blamed for Hillary's loss, I said, I've got to I got to do something about this. I have to like it disrupt quote unquote this process. And so I started tweeting just books about you know leftists of color. So I was tweeting books like Hammer and Ho by Robin DG Kelly. I was tweeting, you know, like literally so many books that I had read for my exams and in my own research and just, you know, tweeting the names with the author's names, a little bit of a description and the link to the book and then left hashtag left POC because I said we exist, you know, there are leftists of color who've really changed the game. And a lot of the contributions and, and things that we've done on the left have been pivotal to, to leftist organizing in this country and elsewhere. And in particular, in my own work, I mean, we were leaders in these groups. So it wasn't like, you know, all the groups were like led by white people and there were a few people of color scattered here and about. It was literally like in a lot of my work, people who were of, of African descent, of Asian descent, of indigenous descent, who were leading the charge and really fighting against systems that were oppressing them and often doing so through the lens of Marxism, Leninism, Marxist-Leninism, um, all sorts of, all many forms of socialism, Maoism, et cetera. So the list goes on and on of the options that we pursued for freedom. And so I think it's really important to highlight that. So anyway, long story short, after some encouragement from fellow podcasters and other people that I'd been talking to, they were like, you know, you should really 
do you, I'd been told like, you should do a podcast. You should do a podcast. And I'm like, I don't have time. Like, how am I going to do that? I'm trying to finish my dissertation. I'm trying to just, you know, get life in order and whatnot. How am I going to do a podcast? But I had some experience in the past because I used to DJ and I had a music podcast. So I at least knew what to do on the technical end. I knew I could do that cheaply and without a producer and without having to pay a ton of people to, to do things for me. So I was like, all right, I'll give this a shot. And I ended up going with it and I called it the Left Pocket Project because, or the Left Pocket Project podcast, specifically because what I wanted was that, you know, the point was that learning about history and learning about leftist history should be something that's easy and accessible. It shouldn't be something that's like, you know, trapped behind a paywall or that's limited to only people who can afford to access these institutions of higher learning or to buy all these books or whatever. You know, I didn't want it to be something that was closed as I feel so many, unfortunately, so many leftist spaces are. Many of them require that you pay a membership dues, you know, membership dues, that you join a book club or that you do something that kind of takes away some from your time. And I wanted the podcast to be easy and accessible for everyone. And so the idea was like, you should be able to reach into your pocket, pull out your smartphone and swipe and just learn about these people and the movements that they led. And so that's where the idea of the pocket came in. And of course, pocket has the letters P-O-C in the beginning of it. So that's where the name came from for the left pocket project. So from there, um, I went ahead, I started the, pro the podcast, and initially I wanted to do in-person meetings as well, but because I was moving back and forth between countries and my research and whatnot, I figured, okay, I'll, I'll save this for later. Obviously now in the pandemic, it severely limits the prospect of <laughs> in-person uh, shows and meetings, but my main purpose was that I always wanted people to be able to access it wherever they were in the world, in their lives, and I wanted it to just be to be an easy process. I don't want limits to learning about this information. And I certainly think that it's, a, it's always been a problem for, in my opinion, that you have people who are professors and people getting paid a ton of money and whatever, and they're researching these communities. And yet their work is not necessarily easily accessible to those communities by virtue of cost or language or, you know, fill in the blank. And so I wanted to make sure that the medium itself was something that anyone could understand. And I also wanted it to be hyperactive and interactive. So that way, if there were listeners and people who engaged our project who had questions, they could have easy access to us, like me and my, my later co-host as well. So that's why almost everything is done virtually. Now, with regard to Reading Revolution and Comrade Mommy, those were aspects of the podcast that came a bit later. And one of the ways that we devised Reading Revolution, I did, I started with my co-host Richard. One of the things that we kept saying was like, we wanted to make sure that, you know, whatever we read is something that people can access as well. So that's how, for example, we end up putting the books on or the articles onto the Patreon page. So there, every, every aspect of the podcast is you know, and the project itself is always keeping in mind, okay, how can we make sure that this is free, this is accessible, and that it democratizes what is otherwise often um, a limited and, and highly institutionalized process, despite the fact that these movements are led by people who were often, you know, excluded from these types of institutions. So we wanted to just keep to the work of the people that we, or to honor the work of the people that we study and talk about. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing more about what led to the structure of a podcast and sort of how you really uh, intentional, intentionally activated as a space 
not only for discussion to uh, recover and uncover and make accessible um, histories of leftists of color, but also, you know, to make those materials actually available. They're not rendered sort of further out of, you know, the listener's access, you know, you're sort of making this connection, you know, by, you know, through this medium of a podcast. And thank you also for sharing more about Reading Revolution. Um, I actually want to ask more about your second subseries, which you very recently started called Comrade Mommy, uh, which specifically focuses on anti-capitalist parenting and to expand this conversation on publishing and content that's most often made unavailable. You know, this, this subseries, which you describe in the introductory episode, which I'll put a link to in our show notes, you know, you specifically address, you know, what is so often not talked about and what's even much less written about is parenting and being politically engaged, while also, you know, again, recovering, addressing, activating histories of leftists that have and had children. So I wanted to actually talk more about that subseries. And as a mother, as a podcaster, researcher, and also grad student, how are you approaching this subseries? You know, and maybe thinking about Reading Revolution 2, you know, how they're similar or maybe different. And what has the process been like so far choosing leftist content about parenting? So, you know, I'm a parent. I became a mom in the in late February, kind of right before everything went on lockdown here in the United States. So I'm a, a proud mom of my daughter. And you know, one of the things I noticed when I was when I became pregnant and I was preparing to become a mom, and then after the fact, is that so much content about parenting is incredibly just not my type, not my cup of tea, right? So it's it's often based on buying a lot of stuff you know, spending a lot of money on products and on, on things for yourself and the baby. And then on top of that, you know, just the constant consumerism that goes with parenting in general with new clothes and this type of food and that type of, it was just like overwhelming. On top of that, I found that a lot of the content in terms of theme, it just like, or the ideology and politics behind the parenting styles were very limiting and not, again, not my cup of tea. So it was predominantly white parents. It was predominantly, you know, religiously conservative parents. And if not religiously conservative at the most, like you would get kind of middle of the road centrists or liberal types of parents, which is fine. I mean, again, no, no disrespect to these people, but it was just not for me. And then I also found that it was just just very limited in terms of politics. Often the parents didn't really talk about politics, even though they were clearly surrounded by political issues, right? As a parent, you're often navigating a lot of things that relate to politics in your everyday life, like cost of healthcare, cost of childcare, issues of dealing with racism and sexism and things like that that, are, that you deal with and potentially that your child can deal with as well and trying to navigate and speak to your child about those issues. So there are, all, there's a, there are heaps of <laughs> political things that come up in the life of parents. And yet this discussion of politics is sort of tiptoed around. And I, I kind of, I realized that that also kind of goes back into the hyper-capitalist aspect of parenting vlogs and blogs and, and podcasts, because a lot of these parents are trying to get sponsorships by companies that, that they then promote on their content sharing networks, or they're trying to get affiliations with certain 
uh, networks like Disney and other, you know, child, child-centered, child-focused media conglomerates. So there's, you can feel the tensions in many cases where parents are trying to say, okay, maybe I should mention this or whatever, but don't. The other issue too is that for parents who vlog, which is like a video blog, people who use YouTube, oftentimes YouTube will demonetize any content that becomes quote unquote political, which is a new, a new feature, I would say, as of the past few years on YouTube. It used to not be the case. But now if you speak about anything that's political, you can't really make money from your YouTube ads and things like that that run throughout your content. And so it's, it's, it's really just kind of a landmine. And I said, there's got to be a way to break this. So I just said, you know what, I'm just going to start, you know, a few podcasts here and there that are sort of housed under left POC, because of course I am a leftist of color, but I'm also a mom. And so I wanted to make sure that I could talk about these issues freely. And I got a really good response from a lot of parents who also could feel the same tensions in a lot of parent-related content and children's related content that really was like mum on on politics. And I, you know, with regard to it being anti-capitalist, that's definitely the case. But obviously wrapped up in that is the issue of being anti-racist, you know, being feminist and internationalist and so many other things that I think go hand in hand with being anti-capitalist or at least should. So the the podcast, this this sub-series of the podcast also deals with those issues. I've only done two episodes at this point. One is obviously the introductory episode and one was my first real episode of the podcast where I talk about you know, maternity issues and racism. And I also talk about sort of the abortion struggle in the United States or the right to reproductive rights here and what it means to actually be pro-choice because I, I, I frame the issue around the, the problem of, of rhetoric around choice that often ignores women's economic backgrounds, social backgrounds, and things like that. That can sometimes, from a liberal standpoint, the idea of choice can end up being just as limiting as quote-unquote pro-life advocacy. So I just, I sort of dissect what it means to have choice within a, in an oppressive system and, and talk about those issues. But in the future, I plan on having other parents who are on the left, who are activists, um, having interviews with them to talk about their parenting styles. My co-host Richard will join me at times as well, because we're going to do some, some book reading. So books that are you know, leftist, but approachable and accessible for children of all ages. I also plan on having some specialists to talk about issues related to, you know, birthing while as a trans person, um, issues of postpartum depression, issues of of handling childcare on a budget, et cetera. So it's going to be a wide range of topics that I'll cover, but just kind of thinking of this as, as again, filling a, a space that I that I felt was lacking. So that's how this started and, and where it's going to continue to go. Yeah, I think, you know, in terms of, you know, publishing, making this accessible, similar to uh, Reading Revolution, I think this series is doing incredible work. And I don't have children, but I'm around children, you know, it's, it's, so by extension, you know, I think what's so powerful about this sub-series is, is also thinking about, well, what's my role in a child's life and how can I take, how does my political work, you know, extend in that direction too? So I just want to encourage all our listeners to definitely begin following. I'm very excited for future episodes. So thank you for sharing so much more about uh, the series. And 
to continue um, our conversation for today, um, I wanted to refer back again to our earlier email exchange, um, which again, I'll put online, it will be accessible for free. Um, but what I particularly took away from uh, a few of your answers was, um, you know, you discuss that podcasting offers this sense of immediacy. You know, it, it creates a certain kind of space for conversation. It's not fixed, you know, like right now, <laughs> you know, it's in motion. Um, it has this sort of uh, in the moment kind of quality. And I just wanted to quote one short passage from your previous answer, which is quote, but I know without a doubt, podcasts like mine and many others reach exponentially more people and can create direct forms of dialogue that written work cannot, end quote. So I wanted to expand on, you know, this kind of access that you're speaking about that podcasts like yours offer and ask what you think listening means for podcasting as well as for publishing, both for you as a host and just sort of conceptualizing, okay, listening for an audience, an expanding audience, and wanted to ask sort of what, what do you think listening means also when preparing for a podcast episode? And, you know, I was writing this, this question and kind of was reflecting, okay, what do I mean? What am I asking? And I sort of was realizing that I was kind of imagining you know, having an imaginary conversation already with you, you know, I hope, you know, I hope that doesn't sound strange, but um, <laughs> it's a certain kind of conceptual space. So I wanted to ask what kind of knowledge practices do you think listening, you know, during, with specifics to a, a podcast episode, you know, what kind of knowledge practices may be activated and also contribute not only to publishing, but just but just thinking of listening, you know, as as having a, maybe a certain form, even when a podcast episode doesn't isn't necessarily a, an interview in any strict kind of sense. Sure, um, so many things to say about that, and I'm, so I'm going to do my best <laughs> to answer the question because there's so what you were asking activated so many like fired so many synapses in my brain here. Um, on the listening front, it's interesting being a podcast host. And, and co-hosts on top of that, because we're all three or more of us are engaged in a conversation, right? My co-host and I prepare. So we usually read any materials that the guests may have sent us. So like, let's say, for example, if it's an academic, they will send us, we'll ask them to send us any of their written work or anything that they want us to highlight during the show. So we're already engaging in reading. My co-host actually uses a program that kind of turns most reading into an audiobook style. So he's listening on top of listening, if that makes sense. And then we, in the, in the act of interviewing someone, we're listening as well. So it's this hyper-dynamic process that I think sometimes gets lost if you're just reading a text or if you're just sitting in a lecture hall listening in that way. The other thing that's interesting about it too is that because our podcast episodes are fairly conversational, even when we're having interviews with people who are academics, what I often say to them is, you know, pretend that you are preparing to give a talk to a group of freshmen, right? So you're kind of at this median age in terms of education, and you're also dealing with people who may know a little bit, but who don't know a ton about the subject matter. And so the point is like to engage the listener of the podcast, but also not to overwhelm them with terminology or ideas or theory that may be beyond the scope of what they already understand. And that's not making an assumption about listeners. I mean, what I'm saying is I recognize that some of the subject matter just may be beyond the reach, including of myself and my co-host. So we're learning 
learning as well while we're listening. And so that's why I try to, I, I make sure that the, the guests are, you know, leading the discussion in a way that's easy to understand, but that also engages us so that we want to learn more. And, and I think that that's really important and also makes a difference between writing and, and listening because, or reading and listening. Because one of the things that happens often when I read is, you know, I'll find myself looking something up or I'm going flipping back to look at the footnotes or whatever. It's a completely different process. And it's one that sometimes, you know, takes a different level of concentration that we don't always have, right? So if I'm taking care of the baby or if I'm working or if I'm doing something, if I'm going for a walk or, or if I'm cooking or cleaning, something, anything, fill in the blank, I can turn on a podcast and learn while I'm doing that. Whereas I can't necessarily, you know, like download an academic article and read it while I'm cooking. You know what I mean? So that also allows for a more active learning process and a multitasking learning process, if you will, that I think makes podcasts so unique. The other thing though, that I find difficult about podcasting in this, this space is that I'm always thinking about the people whom I cannot reach through podcasting, right? Like who, who falls through the cracks of podcasting? And so that's why I, for example, I've always had my assistants make transcripts so that if anyone ever asks for a transcript, let's say if they cannot hear, I can give them a transcript and they can read along um, based on what we've said. We also always have like a, a backup, obviously, of any text that we discuss during the Reading Revolution segments. And also anything that our guests discuss as part of the general left POC interviews, we often, uh, we have, you know, show notes where we include articles that they've written, books that they've written, et cetera, or books that they, or articles that they recommend. And we also even cite our discussions. So like if I'm having just a news discussion with Richard, anything that comes up in the article or in the discussion, we include in the show notes um, with articles and books. So it's, it's a highly interactive and dynamic space using a podcast. But at the same time, like I said, you can't reach everyone, unfortunately. And this is the case for all communicative mediums. But I worry a lot about access in terms of, of, you know, monetary access and things like that. So for example, let's say if you live in a place where the internet is just pretty bad, or um, if you're living in a rural community or living in another country where internet access is highly limited or costly, right? Um, when I was in Mozambique, for example, doing some research for my dissertation, I had to pay for internet access by the gig. And so like, if I'm paying per gigabyte for my internet, I, I'm not going to be able to download a podcast that's two hours long. So I, wor I worry often or think about often, like, what can I do to make things even more accessible than they already are? But I, I do the best that I can. And I, I invite people often to give me even more suggestions on how to do that. Language barrier is another one. Um, but we're, we've been kind of thinking about ways to expand our our audience by either offering transcripts in other languages or having some episodes in other languages as I speak several languages on top of English. So, you know, we, we're doing our best, uh, but it's something that I definitely think about. And I think that podcasts, at least in many ways, offer, you know, they, they off, it becomes a medium that can be um, even more accessible and dynamic than some others. Here I want to highlight how Wendy connects listening to critical practices of accessibility and what that means for a podcast and creative content. And to talk about listening as a way to form a particular kind of relationship, the kind of dialogue that Paolo Freire and Pedagogy of the Oppressed discusses as both critical and liberating, where, quote, 
No one teaches another, nor is anyone self-taught. People teach each other, mediated by the world." End quote. So I want to re-highlight Wendy's contribution in this context especially as she references Freddy in the following part of our conversation and to draw connections specifically to how she enables this kind of dialogue through accessibility and other aspects of the podcast design and structure as Wendy shares next. And what I find so critical here is how Wendy connects accessibility to a wide range of needs related to, for example, language, transcription, data volume, and making content multilingual, which have always been priorities of this podcast from the very beginning, and something that I want to thank Edna especially for, as she has put this into practice throughout. This leads me back to my conversation with Wendy, and my final question about what advice Wendy would give to podcasters in the preliminary stages when deciding to make a podcast, as well as throughout the process. And now back to Wendy from our conversation. So that goes back into the listening element, actually. Um, one of the earliest Reading Revolution episodes we did for Left POC was of Paulo Freire's work, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And in that work, which is like very famous, you know, lots of people have read it and discussed it and analyzed it, fill in the blank, right? So it's not that we're, you know, reinventing the wheel by discussing his work. But I think it plays a big role into the ways that we think about the podcast. So that's why I need to mention it here as in my discussion of advice, right? I think that one of the most important aspects of that work is when Freire talks about the need to listen and to listen to the, the people in the communities that you hope to serve, right? He literally talks about like having, having like listening sessions where you, where the people, let's say if you're doing research in a community or whatever, you go there and you listen to people and their needs and like have them express themselves first. And I think that we as podcast hosts and creators of, and not just podcast hosts, but creators of any sort of content, you have to think about what the community needs, not just what you want to do. Right. And, you know, I, one of the things that one of the reasons why when I first started the podcast and the project itself, the things that I was responding to was not just my own feelings, right? Like, oh, I'm frustrated that, you know, people of color are being portrayed in this way. But it was also by hearing over and over by fellow leftists of color that we were like really tired of this limited framing of our political experience. And so I think it's important for people to listen. I know that there's like an overabundance of podcasts now. Many people are in it to make money at this point. They've seen the success of other podcasts that I will not name, um, but some that have gotten exorbitant amounts of money. They haven't really used that money to give back to the community and they've continued to just sort of, you know, use that money to their own ends, which is fine. I mean, it is what it is. But for our community model as, as leftist podcasters, we really believe that we have to also give back in the same, you know, at the same time. So for example, we donate, we make donations to the organizations of the choice of our uh, guests. So if we have a guest on, we ask them, you know, we're going to give you a small honorarium, but we're also going to make a matching donation to the organization of your choice, you know, out of honor and respect for their time, but also as a way 
to continue to contribute to the communities on which we are based and of which we are a part. We also support other podcasters. So we give small donations to other leftist podcasts as well, many of which are, you know, struggling financially because sometimes podcasting can be expensive. You have to have a producer, if you have to have web storage, all these things. So it's, it's easy sometimes, but it's not always that cheap depending on, you know, how you're doing it. So we definitely try to, to think of things in a reflexive manner. And I suggest that to others as well, right? Like before you, before you start a podcast, listen to the community, think of ways to give back to the community, consider, you know, the guests that you have on as well. Um, that's another issue that has kind of plagued, unfortunately plagued uh, leftist, the leftist podcasting and content creation community in the sense that, you know, there are people who sometimes engage in activities that harm other people within the community, um, be it sexual assault, harassment, racism, you know, sexism, fill in the blank. And, and we have to be careful in terms of vetting and making sure that people are accountable, you know, that we have on the, our show. I think there are a lot of ways that we, we have to be responsible as well. I, I, that's my personal opinion. You know, I think sometimes people feel like, oh, it's just a podcast, whatever, like no need for, for heavy duty work. <laughs> you know, you just like record yourself talking and that's it. But I think that there's also a degree of ownership that you have to take over what you're doing, responsibility that you have to take for what you're doing. And, you know, again, just like community accountability. So that's not a, a technical answer to the question, right? Because there's all these, there are all these like technical sides to putting out a podcast as well. But I think before you sit down and say to yourself, I want to do this thing, you have to think about all of these other aspects as well and be ready for that when you start something of this degree, especially in the instance that let's say it, it does blow up and becomes really popular, you have to, to account for, you know, what kind of groundwork you laid from the beginning. As a concluding question, which I've said a few times, but this is the actual <laughs> concluding question, um, I wanted to end this episode by asking what books as well as podcasts, especially by people of the African diaspora, would you like to highlight and share? Sure. Um, so I apologize in advance. These are all uh, U.S.-based authors, but I think that some of the, I think a lot of the themes and issues that they tackle in these books are applicable worldwide, um, especially in the African diaspora. So just want to put that out there, especially because I had spent so much of my discussion with Edna uh, talking about the way that there's such a hegemonic reach of a lot of even U.S. left-based authors and, and thinkers and why we have to be careful about that. But anyway, that aside, um, I think these are, these are works by people who are actually often thinking about and reflecting on the ways that they can be more in touch with international groups and, and other people in the diaspora, the African diaspora in particular. Um, so the first book I would recommend, especially in these times and especially as, as you know, neoliberalism and conservatism and just like the overreach of American power both domestically and internationally ramps up is there's a book called We Will Shoot Back Armed Resistance in the Mississippi Freedom Movement by um, Ikinyele Umoja. I think it's an amazing book. He talks about the groups within the civil rights movement or that were sort of parallel to the civil rights movement in the deep south that were organizing and literally learning how to use you know, subversive methods and, and armed struggle, you know, using guns, using other means of physical combat to protect themselves and fellow movement workers and how that was a crucial element, integral element of the civil rights movement that's often left out of the story, especially as we talk a lot about, 
you know, peaceful protests and, and things like that, it's important to also remember that there was an underlying movement um, that undergirded in many ways and protected the people who were doing the, the quote unquote peaceful movements on the ground and how often those that that idea of peaceful and violent protests is a false dichotomy that we it's something that there's no such thing as a purely peaceful protest. And I think it's something that we have to keep in mind, especially as you know, movements on the ground regarding the, the sanctity of Black life and anti-colonial movements, anti-imperial movements that continue around the world, including in places like Palestine. You know, it's important for us to have an understanding of the ways that these movements are, as, as I, a word that I keep using, but that I really like, that are dynamic, right? They're not just one-dimensional. It's important for us to, to reflect and understand that. The other book that I would recommend that I just think is, is, helpful for a lot of the work that I do on the Left Pocket Project podcast, but in general as a Black leftist, is a book called Black, Blacks In and Out of the Left by Michael C. Dawson. And he kind of, he, he breaks down a lot of the moments in leftist history in the United States in which Black people were heavily involved, um, but faced issues dealing with racism and classism within the left movement and sort of what they did to tackle that and the methods that they used to continue their struggle as anti-capitalist, you know, anti-racist leaders and activists, but while at the same time organizing primarily amongst themselves to get those changes that they that they needed made. So it's a really great book. I'm not doing it nearly enough service here, but I'd highly recommend people checking it out because this this issue of, you know, is it class? Is it race? How do we deal with identity politics, et cetera, comes up quite a bit still in the American left. And I think that unfortunately a lot of the time white and highly educated upper upper middle class, upper class leftists miss a lot of things because they're not paying attention to the struggles of people of color on the ground that we've been dealing with for centuries and kind of have a deep understanding of and also have methods to to fight against and you know that that are being ignored by those groups so it's a great book on that front and again i think applicable in other areas as well especially throughout the americas where you're dealing with you know the vestiges of colonialism and, and slave states and how people are kind of addressing, you know, where to fit in questions of race alongside or with, wrapped within questions of class and, and classism and socioeconomic disparities. The other, the last book I would recommend is How We Get Free by Kianga Yamada Taylor, or at least she's the editor of the book. And it's a, it's a kind of, it's a collection of interviews that she did with several of the women who were the founders of the Combahee River Collective, which is where we got this, this phrase of identity politics, but that unfortunately is often distorted in criticisms thereof. Um, and it's a great book just kind of outlining, outlining you know, what their initial arguments were, where they are now, and how their philosophies is act have actually had a major impact on left organizing and feminism, and that you know, what was left out of their individual stories and their stories within leftist struggle, um, how that's been sort of overlooked in the present. So Kianga Yamada Taylor interviews some of those women. She also interviews Alicia Garza, who was one of the original um, founders of the Black Lives Matter hashtag and subsequent movement. 
you know, Alicia Garza is in a different place now politically, but I still think that her contributions to the book are important. And it was great that, you know, Kiange and Mata Taylor had in dialogue in many ways, these quote unquote elders of the black feminist movement and also the, you know, the queer movement, because many of these women identified as lesbians or bisexual at the time of uh, the Combahee River Collective meetings. Um, but I also think it's, it's great how she sort of combines their work in a, in an earlier time with the work of young activists in the present um, and how there's so much overlap and how they can learn so much from one another as they continue to struggle against the forces that oppress us. So those are my three books. Um, they're all available and published by sort of independent publishers um, in the US. And so I think that they made like a nice little contribution to that in honoring, um, you know, indie press and, and forms of publishing that are not necessarily mainstream. So. Yeah, those are my top three for now. Thank you so much for talking with me today, for also sharing such um, thoughtful and, and critical recommendations. Um, so again, wanted to just say thank you for meeting with me today. Thank you. I encourage all our listeners to listen to the Left Pocket Project podcast and consider becoming a member on the Patreon page. You can also listen to the Left Pocket Project on SoundCloud and iTunes. Follow the Left Pocket Project on Twitter at LeftPOC. Please check the show notes for links to all episodes mentioned, as well as for a bibliography by visiting www.decolonizationinaction.com. Follow us on Twitter at DeconAction. A special thanks to Wendy Muse for her immense contribution to this episode, and a special thanks to Deck in Action creator and host Edna Bonhomme for her support and for all the work she does for this podcast and her decolonial approach to doing this work. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>